0: IBA Talk, the Insurance Business America
1: podcast. In this episode, presented in partnership with CoreLogic, we're joined by Dr. Tom Jeffrey, Principal and Senior Hazard Scientist with CoreLogic Spatial Solutions. Dr. Jeffrey gives us a detailed analysis of U.S. wildfire risk and looks at the impact of past fires and the outlook for 2020. With the additional challenges of the COVID-19 pandemic, Dr. Jeffrey explains key contributors to wildfire exposure, best practice planning, and risk mitigation that can help business owners avoid wildfire destruction.
0: Hello everybody and welcome back to IBA Talk, the insurance industry podcast brought to you by Insurance Business America. Uh, In this episode we're taking a deep dive into wildfire risk. I can tell you at the time of recording that there are 46 active wildfires burning in 11 American states impacting approximately 273,000 acres of land according to the National Interagency Fire Center. This is a very serious peril for the United States to contend with today and into the future as we continue to deal with the impacts of climate change. To help us pick apart wildfire risk, it's my pleasure today to introduce Dr. Tom Jeffrey, Principal and Senior Hazard Scientist for CoreLogic Spatial Solutions. Tom, welcome to IBA Talk.
2: Thank you, happy to be here.
0: (laughs) Excellent, Tom, I'd like to start this conversation by taking a look back at 2019. Um, In terms of wildfire threat and damage, What was 2019 like and how did it compare with recent years?
2: Well, that's really interesting to look at fire history over the years and see how it changes, sometimes very dramatically. And 2019 is an example of how that occurred. We came out of a couple years, 2017 and 2018 in the United States, where fires, there were a tremendous number of fires and they did a, a horrible amount of damage to properties, 2019 saw a very dramatic decline in the amount of property destruction. Overall burned area in the U.S. dropped to approximately half of what it had in either of the previous two years. Now that doesn't, it sounds like, you know, that really is a minimal amount that you would think occurred then in 2019, but it still covered over four and a half million acres, which is just over 7,000 square miles. So even though it was a dramatic decline last year, there still was a tremendous amount of area that burned. It just so happened that 2019 did not see the amount of destruction, and that isn't meant to minimize, you know, the number of homes or the people that were displaced because of the fires that occurred last year. But certainly, the amount of destruction was was much less than it had been in either of the prior two years. So, 2019 again was one of those downturns in the the somewhat cyclical. Uh, wildfire activity that occurs in the U.S. Um, it's, it's really not uncommon. We've seen that in the past. We've seen these spikes and, and valleys that occur over time and it's not, again, not uncommon to have a several years of high activity followed by a year or maybe a couple of years of lower activity. The one thing I think that I always try to emphasize whenever I talk about wildfire because even if there is a year or two of lower activity, so, you know, like 2019 or so far this year in 2020, you know, again, not to minimize what's happened so far, but it is showing kind of a lower trend to date. doesn't mean that's going to continue, but certainly to date. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean there can't be a lot of damage or destruction because we can look back at years that have had relatively low numbers in terms of fire acreage and and number of fires. And we can see huge, major catastrophic events. 2003 is one that comes to mind in terms of a year that we saw a relatively low number of wildfire acres burned, but it was also the year that brought California the Cedar Fire, the Old Fire and both of those fires combined for more than 4,000 stru- structures destroyed. So, again, it's where the fires occur that's more important than just the raw number of how much acreage burned or how many fires there were in total.
0: Mm, that's interesting. Um, now, now if we sort of look at 2020, obviously, this year so far uh, has been relatively quiet. Um, but what's the outlook like for this year and, and perhaps beyond 2020 as well?
2: Well, I think that's always going to be the thing that's of most concern in in terms of trying to predict or project what's going to happen. Very difficult to do with wildfire. I think it's difficult to do with all natural hazards, but certainly wildfire would be similar in that you're looking at fire patterns that can change based on weather, uh, not just climate, but actual weather conditions. So if you have more precipitation, you should have fewer fires. More humidity, fewer fires. But if you have dry, windy conditions, you may have more catastrophic fires. And that's, you know, unfortunately, we have a difficult time determining that far into the future. We certainly do a very, and when I say we, I mean, uh, meteorologists in general have a a much better opportunity to look at what's going to happen tomorrow or next week than they do next month or next uh, six months. But given the fact that we really need to look to the future and, and try to see what's going on. Uh, I think that it's critically important to understand that, you know, the, the area that we're talking about in the Western U.S., where the vast majority of fires occur, there's a lot of variability in location. So geographically, when you move to, from one area to another, you're going to see moving a movement from high risk to low and back to high. It really is dependent on the local conditions, uh, in terms of fuels and, and weather patterns. But I guess if I was going to, you know, kind of project out, I would rely on, you know, drought forecasts to see areas that are drier. And certainly there are parts of the Western U.S. If you look at the U.S. Climate Prediction Center, which provides, a, you know, a futuristic look at uh, drought conditions, and you, you can draw a line from Texas through Oregon, and in between those two states, there's a wide swath that's experiencing persistent, it's supposed to experience persistent drought conditions moving into the next couple months. And again, drought conditions are of concern when you have the potential for these ignitions to occur. And when we look at the NIFC or National Interagency Fire Center, they have actually suggested that the Northwest quarter of the U.S., looking from California to Montana and then to the Northwest of that line, that is an area that is potentially at risk of higher wildfire activity. So we have these agencies that are doing a, a tremendous job in trying to identify areas that we should, we need to consider and look to in the near future. Uh, so that gives us some perspective, um, you know, at least a month or two in advance, we can get an idea of where the hotspots may be. But again, that doesn't mean they're limited to those areas. If we look beyond 2020, then it's really difficult. Um, it's for me, you know, looking a year ahead or a year in advance or two years in advance, what I would say in terms of my perspective is that I don't see anything changing greatly from what we have now. So if we, we know that these fires, you know, maybe will fluctuate on a somewhat cyclical pattern year over year. So we can have more acres one year, fewer acres the next year, but overall, I don't see any tremendous change that would cause a decline in the number of fires or the potential for where they occur in and around uh, residential properties, businesses, and so forth that are going to be impacted. So I think the one thing that remains top of mind for me is that when I look at areas now and in the future, we know that precipitation causes a decline in wildfire activity. It's simply put the fuel is not going to ignite or carry fire as well. So areas that have precipitation in the immediate aftermath of that, they're going to see less fire activity. However, the long-term evaluation of those areas, when the precipitation occurs, if it's even if it's a standard amount of precipitation or if it's excessive amounts of precipitation, You have a situation where the precipitation causes fuels to grow and maybe regrow in areas that are impacted by fire uh, to an extent where there may be more fuel after the precipitation than there was prior, which only means that when that becomes drier in the future, now these areas may be even at greater susceptibility because you'll have more fuel that has built up because of the excess precipitation in those areas. So it's something to consider that this is kind of an ever-changing environment and that, you know, what we've seen yesterday isn't necessarily what's going to dictate next week or next month. But the fact of the matter is, long term, there just doesn't seem to be anything that would indicate a a dramatic change over what we've seen recently in the past few years.
0: Mm. Um, In in terms of areas that are particularly susceptible to, to wildfire risk. Um, California seems to be sort of always top of mind. That's, you know, the state that people think of when wildfires is raised. Um, is the threat of wildfires significantly greater in California compared to other states? Sort of o- overall, if we look at it, where, how does wildfire risk spread out, um, you know, across the United States?
2: Well, interestingly enough, there are... <sighs> You would never say that California is the only state at risk, but I think it has several factors going for it that that make it, that year over year, put it near or at the top of the list of concern. And one of those is the fact that it's a large area. The state covers a large area, and within that large area, you have a lot of high-risk fuels. You have a lot of volatile fuels that when they burn, they generate a lot of heat energy. Ultimately, that is going to be a concern because fires that are more intense will have the greater opportunity to destroy or damage structures. So the conifer forests and the chaparral brush that you have spread throughout the state, that contributes greatly to the fact that the fires will and do occur relatively frequently and with great intensity in the state. I think the other factor that separates it somewhat from other Western states, is that California's population puts people at risk? You have more people spread out throughout the state than if you were to look at a state like Idaho or Montana, you just don't have that population distribution spread across the state. In California, you do, and because of that, because there are more people and they are spread, you know, more they're spread throughout the state in more dense clusters the opportunity for a given fire in that state to affect uh, structures, properties is, is much higher. So that's the primary concern about California. And because of that, uh, you know, it does have a lot of fire activity and it does periodically have the type of events that really are the catastrophic wildfire events. But with that said, you know, you really have to backtrack a little bit and say that California is not alone in its wildfire risk in the West. Uh, what we, what we're looking at here are other states. And I think, you know, some of them that kind of pop into the conversation, Colorado would be one, Arizona, maybe another, uh, Texas certainly has uh, plentiful fuels and, and the type of conditions that lead to catastrophic wildfires. So if we look back in recent years, the last decade or so, Colorado has three of the most destructive record setting fires in terms of losses in the years 2012 and 2013, they had three record-setting events in those two years. Texas, 2011, the Bastrop fire, again one of the worst fires in state history, 1,600 homes destroyed. New Mexico, Arizona, we have other states uh, that certainly have their share of, of wildfire risk and past events that show that that risk can can promulgate, uh, you know, a tremendous amount of damage. So we don't just exclusively look at California. We have to look at other states that, you know, experience that. And in the grand, in the grand scheme of things, when we look at the entire U.S., all 50 states, most years you'll have some wildfire activity in every one of them. Granted, if you looked at Rhode Island or or Hawaii, you tend to have very, very tiny amounts of wildfire activity in terms of acreage burned. But every state has some type of activity normally in a typical year. But if we just look at the states that have the highest amount of wildfire activity, the the, the most frequent fires and certainly the most acreage burned, about 90% of wildfires that occur in terms of the, the activity is going to be related to about 15 states. And again, we kind of focus on those 15 states. We're more concerned in areas where you have more frequent fires or the the they have the capacity to have the more significant burns. So even though we've seen activity in other states, it's really the western U.S. Uh, where the highest amount of activity could occur. One of the things that I'm tasked with every year is kind of encapsulating that in terms of, you know, what are, what are these numbers? When homes burned, if we identify 15 states where the most frequent activity occurs, um, what does that look like in terms of real numbers? And what we have come up with this year for, for our annual evaluation is that about 2 million homes, there are about 2 million homes in these 15 states that are at high or elevated risk for wildfire damage. And that, Translates into about 640 billion dollars worth of reconstruction costs. So, it's you know, it's not going to be similar to maybe what you would see with a massive uh, hurricane approaching a populated area along the East Coast or the Gulf. But certainly, wildfire activity has the potential to have a dramatic impact on, on property loss and how it affects the people living in these areas.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, especially this year, you know, if we can bring it round to current events, uh, we enter the 2020 wildfire season in the middle of a global pandemic. Um, How does this complicate and impact wildfire risk, especially in terms of sort of response and how we're able to recover from a wildfire event?
2: Well, that certainly is something that has it's been an issue that even going back to February and March uh, when we started to see the pandemic increase its scope and intensity uh, one of my early thoughts obviously having to deal with uh, wildfire is how that has the potential to impact the response and how it impacts the people that are located in these areas and I think the first thing that, that really came to mind was the fact that in a lot of fires, you and I think with a lot of hazards, not just wildfire, but certainly with wildfire as well as others, you have fires that can approach a population, a community. And the first thought is that you have to evacuate those people. They have to move, they have to relocate. And so that is one of the things that the pandemic, pandemic it affects immediately, is the fact that if people are, afraid to to leave their homes because now we're all sheltering in home more at home more or less and if they're required now to move out of those homes they want to know that where they're going to the locations they're being evacuated to are safe um, and and they have you know precautions taking place so that these people are will not be infected by the virus so i think that's the first thing is is having those having those a plan set up so that the locations of the evacuation centers ensure that there is minimal opportunity for the virus to transmit in those areas and i know that the responders in those areas and the communities are doing just that and so it still is going to be a little bit of a hurdle to get people to again leave their homes it, it was it was that was the fact of the matter before the pandemic some people just we're refusing to evacuate. Now it's even more crucial because you really want those people to be safe. You don't want them to be affected by the fire. Uh, the other problem I think that is top of mind here again is the fact that unlike some hazards, Uh, We have responders that actively go out and combat this fire. It's, It's not something you necessarily do with a hurricane or a flood. Very difficult to try to combat those as they're going on. Impossible in some cases to do anything to deter those hazards. Wildfire is something that we have some control over. And so aircraft that are dropping chemical retardant, not to mention the ground crews that go out and battle these things along the fire lines. And those are opportunities, again, for people to be put into groups uh, in terms of the responders going out and fighting these fires, working together to combat the fire. And they're obviously at higher risk than of transmission of the virus. So it's something that care has to be taken along those lines. And I think the final thing is that in the aftermath of any fire, you have a recovery effort. You have homes that need to be repaired or rebuilt. And so now you have people moving around and you have insurance adjusters are coming in uh, to look at the claims, look at the properties. And so you just have more people that are mixing and congregating in these areas. And again, the idea is that you want them all to be as safe as possible. And so the precautions have to be taken, undertaken to make sure that happens.
0: Yeah, absolutely. With, you know, with all of these challenges in mind, um, you know, we don't know how long this pandemic is going to last. How can, how should people prepare for wildfire season this year and possibly next year as well, um, you know, as we don't know what the future is going to look like?
2: Well, I think as with all hazards, and again, I, I say that because this isn't just exclusive to wildfires but you need to know where the threat is. You need to know if your property is at risk. You need to know if you're near a risk or a high risk area, because you know you don't have to be located in a forest. You don't have to be located in an area surrounded by fuel in order to be at risk. The threat of embers coming from a, a, an occurring fire and landing on your property, on your house, uh, finding a, their way into your house or into your structure uh, is as great a concern as for the properties that are located right in the fuels. So know the threat. Know if you are in an area that is susceptible to wildfire. If they've occurred in the past, it's usually a good indicator they will in the future, but know that risk in, in the area. And then if you are, you need to have a plan of action. Again, this is this is not something that's unique to wildfires, but you need to assess what you can do what you would do if a fire were to occur in your area approach your property uh, if you're going to evacuate you know have a, a action plan of what where you want to go uh, if you don't have a place to go pay attention to what the what the emergency managers are telling you in terms of evacuation centers but then know what you want to take don't haphazardly wait till the last minute and then just you know, try to throw things in your car or your bag and and go. Make sure you have the things that are important and critical that you need to take with you. Um, There are some simple things. And again, local agencies and governments have a much better and much more complete explanation of this than I do. So that would be something you would want to do, too, is, is, again, not wait till the last minute, but consult with some of the agencies in your area to know what a good plan of action would be. But something as simple as closing windows doors and garage doors when you leave which may not be something you're thinking of actively when you're again running from a fire evacuating your home but again closing up the structure means that those embers can't get into that structure and ignite some of the more easily uh, ignitable or vulnerable parts of your of your home and so I think again preparation in advance is the key Uh, we you don't want to wait till you hear the warning sirens or hear the warning over the tv or radio or on your phone that you have to evacuate t- to come up with a plan it needs to be done as early as as you can
0: yeah but just building on this idea of planning and risk mitigation preparation are there any other things that that homeowners and, and business owners can do to avoid wildfire destruction
2: well there are, there are And again, this kind of falls into the wildfire category more so than other hazards, because interestingly enough, this is something that we do have uh, as residents in an area that is susceptible. You do have some control. Now, it's going to be very difficult to completely eliminate the risk to your property if you live in an area that has substantial wildfire risk. But with that said, that should not deter you from doing everything you can that falls under the heading of mitigation, which is proactively doing things to your property and also to your structure, if necessary, that would minimize the ability of that fire to ignite that structure or the surrounding area. So there are several dozen things that that you could do. I'll just talk about maybe a couple of them here. And probably first and foremost is what's called defensible space. And all that really means is that you are eliminating the bulk of the fuels that are immediately around the outside of your home. So that if you have a lot of brush and grass uh, that's grown up, uh, maybe not right on the lawn, but right close to it, if that's your property and you can mow that down and keep it knocked down, that means that that is less fuel for that fire to feed that fire as it approaches your home and less fuel that can be ignited from embers that maybe land on the property. So lean and green is kind of the the catchphrase here in terms of trying to minimize the amount of fuels right around your property. Doesn't mean you have to clear everything. It's not that, you know, they don't want, nobody wants you to pave over your yard, but at the same time, minimize the fuels that are going to burn readily. And when it says lean and green, it really means green fuels are much harder to ignite and much are much less uh, probable of carrying a fire than are the the, the dry brown fuels. Um, in terms of other things you can do for mitigation, in addition to clearing that defensible space, is that take a look at your structure itself, the, the home itself or the business. Uh, do you have vents in your attic, going into an attic? If you do putting a fine mesh screen over those vents will again, reduce the opportunity for embers to blow into that, through those vents and into the attic where you oftentimes have a lot of maybe cardboard or dry material that's up there that could ignite easily. So uh, little things like that really are crucial. And uh, there are again, a number, a number, numerous agencies out there, uh, both governmental and independent, that offer you a lot of information about this. That I would suggest, you know, taking a look on the internet, and just trying to find uh, out different types of mitigation and how it may apply to where you're located, and how some of these may be relatively easy to do. Uh, so it's it's some of them are not costly, uh, very effective if you do some, especially something like defensible space. And there's um, the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety is another organization that has done a tremendous amount of research on how fires ignite homes. And that's that's the first step in understanding what's vulnerable on your property. So going to IBHS and, and looking at some of the information that they've put together, I think is another, something I strongly suggest to any homeowner who's in an area that's vulnerable to wildfire risk.
0: Yeah brilliant uh well tom thank you very much that's about all we have time for um on today's episode but you've given us lots of food for thought on how to handle wildfire risk so thank you again for that um, well, And
2: my pleasure thank you
0: <laughs> thank you um i'm Beth moorcroft uh, deputy editor at insurance business this is iba talk and we will be back to talk with you all again very soon
1: thank you for listening to this episode of iba talk For more from the experts at CoreLogic on natural hazard and catastrophe risk solutions, be sure to visit CoreLogic.com. That's CoreLogic.com for more. Follow us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts for the latest episodes.